Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined today by Greg Potter. So many of you may not be aware of Greg, but after this, I know you're going to be searching for his video content and things he's written about vigorously because uh, I have been doing that in the recent time and learning a lot about Greg. So who is Greg? So Greg has a PhD from the University of Leeds focused on sleep, diet and metabolism. Um, he has been working with Dan Pardy. Uh, so many of you will know Dan from a long time ago episode that was all about sleep. And that is something we're going to be talking today about at the Human OS. So he's helping people improve their health and performance by improving their lifestyles. And he's also done work with uh, the BBC World Service, Time Magazine, Reuters, and much more. So um, he's got a, good, a lot of good things to say. I don't know if, Greg, you want to add anything to that, if there's uh, some other things people should know about. I know you're into your lifting and everything as well. Yeah, my background's in exercise science, so I guess that's one relevant thing to add. I did my undergrad and my master's in exercise science, qualified as a personal trainer when I was 19, I think. Did some sports massage work, worked for the RFU a bit in concussion, worked as a strength and conditioning coach in several sports, and I used to train elite sprinters. When I say elite, I mean sprinters between the age of about 18 and 25 who are competing at the national level. So I'm not just interested in sleep, but I know that's what we'll focus on today. So yeah, I mean, sleep is obviously something that, and we were just talking off air, how relevant it's become towards kind of performance, towards kind of gaining muscle, losing fat, and how it's probably as big a part of the puzzle as nutrition and training. And so I'd love to delve more into kind of initially just setting some groundwork in terms of kind of why is sleep so important. And a quote I wanted to pull up from yourself was, no bodily process can evade the perilous effects of insufficient sleep, which I just think is such a powerful quote. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of maybe briefly go over some of that stuff and then we'll dig into how we can help our sleep. Sure. And I think it's useful to frame this in terms of evolution. So if you look across different organisms, then sleep is more or less ubiquitous. Almost all organisms have sleep-like behavior. And that surely indicates that it has vital roles in their health and their function. But the longstanding question is, why do we sleep? And to be honest, there's not a very good answer to that question at the moment. The way that I would frame it is that sleep restores our bodies to the next bout of wakefulness. And one way that we can get at why sleep is important is to look at what happens if people don't get enough sleep or if people don't get any sleep whatsoever, and then to track their health outcomes over time. So if you look at humans, for example, then at the extreme, there's a condition named fatal familial insomnia. And this sets in in middle age, at which point life expectancy is only 18 months. And basically what happens is that the brain becomes ever more porous or sponge-like. But obviously that's an extreme and rare genetic condition that's likely to affect dozens of people worldwide and that's it. So what about the rest of us? Well, if you ask people to report how long they sleep and then track their health outcomes over time, then what you see is that for each one hour reduction in sleep per night, there's about a 6% increase in risk of dying from any cause. And that is likely related to people's risk of various chronic diseases. So, for example, meta-analyses, which are just studies that compile the results of other studies and they weight the results according to how well the studies were done, have consistently shown that insufficient sleep or short sleep is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death worldwide. People who report short sleep have a 45% higher odds of developing obesity in years to come. People who report difficulty sleeping are at 55% higher odds of developing Alzheimer's in years to come, which is the primary form of dementia and leading neurodegenerative cause of death that there is. So all of these lines of evidence point to the importance of sleep. And sleep has many different functions in our bodies as that quote that you pulled up suggests and i'll just mention a couple of them one of them is probably related to the restoration of our nervous systems so if you look across different organisms then of all the different things that are predictive of how much sleep 
an individual organism needs. One of them is the complexity of the nervous system. And basically, the longer that we've been awake each day, the stronger the activity in the synapses, which are the structures that the neurons in our brains use to communicate electrochemical signals with each other. And the problem with this is that it requires energy and it saturates our ability to learn new things. And what sleep does is it allows the selective reduction in the excitability of these synapses so that we only hold on to the most important information for us. And then I mentioned earlier that sleep is associated with risk of dying from any cause. And if you experimentally deprive other animals, so rats, for example, of sleep, then one thing that you quickly see is deterioration in immune function. So they're more susceptible to getting infections. And then as a result of that, they tend to pass away faster. And we know that sleep loss causes all sorts of immune dis dysregulation in humans too. So as an example of this, even short periods of insufficient sleep will result in reduced white blood cell counts in humans. People become more likely to pick up upper respiratory tract infections, for example. And then the brain also has its own immune system of sorts. So there's the so-called glymphatic system, which basically helps clear away toxic debris that accumulates during the day in the brain as a result of metabolic activity. So overnight, as animals sleep, the plumbing in the system opens up and then cerebrospinal fluid basically washes all of that toxic debris out of those spaces. So that's just one example. Of course, we could pick any particular bodily system or organ and discuss some of the problems that sleep loss initiates, but that was quite a long-winded answer to your brief question. No, I think it's it just opens the floodgates because like you said, there's just so many things that it impacts. I know um, many people will be aware of this and I know you've spoken about it before, how it can even short-term impact like insulin sensitivity in the fact that you could be predisposing yourself to potentially kind of being diet, like too tight, too type two diabetic if you're consistently getting poor sleep which just is a lot of kind of bodybuilders and physique athletes who are listening to this kind of they shudder when they hear kind of like a poor insulin sensitivity it definitely um, is something you want to avoid and just by getting enough sleep or rather by not having your sleep in check you can put yourself in a poor position in that regard yeah absolutely we've known that for about 20 years now there's a lady named karen spiegel who first showed in 1999 that if you give people less time in bed than they need, then within the period of a few days, people who were previously healthy temporarily become pre-diabetic. And we're now starting to understand which tissues are involved in that. So for example, it seems that skeletal muscle seems to become less insulin sensitive, which is very relevant to your listeners. There's some evidence that the same is true of adipose tissue. It's probably not true of the liver, at least in the short term. Interestingly, there's been some work recently looking at the effects of so-called weekend recovery sleep. So if you look at people, then it's quite common that people have a pattern such that from Monday to, or from Sunday night to Thursday night, people will restrict their sleep because they have to wake up early for work the next day. And then on the weekend, they'll try and catch up. So various research have tried to mimic that in the lab. And to be honest, the results aren't completely consistent. But there was some work published by Ken Wright at the University of Boulder, Colorado, just recently. And their findings suggest that if you try and mimic that in the lab, and you give people five hours of time in bed each night instead of nine hours of time in bed, which is probably what they need, by basically having people go to bed two hours later and then wake up two hours earlier from Sunday to Thursday, then allow people as much time in bed as they like over the weekend. That's not technically correct, but that's what they were trying to get yeah. at effectively. What they found is that that weekend recovery sleep doesn't let people fully make up for the effects of sleep loss during the week. So first, it's clear that they don't fully catch up the total amount of sleep that they lost. Second, if you look at the actual architecture of individual sleep bouts, then that supports the same idea that clearly they don't fully compensate for the sleep lost. And then 
if you look at the outcomes they looked at, so for example, body weight, the timing of people's body's clocks, and insulin sensitivity, then in some instances, those outcomes were actually worse after weekend recovery sleep than if people were just continuously sleep restricted. Mm-hmm. So people are now trying to probe some more specific questions related to that idea. But basically, insulin sensitivity is definitely negatively affected. And that's even in controlled circumstances. Something I'd add to that is that people's food decisions tend to be worse Mm -hmm. after sleep loss too. So if you give people these standardized diets and then don't let them have enough sleep, then you see those effects on insulin sensitivity and oral glucose tolerance, all these different things. But of course, in the real world, it could also be that that's compounded by people gravitating towards very energy dense, palatable, processed foods, end up consuming more of those foods too. Mm -hmm. So basically you have a horrible trifecta. Yeah, that does sound horrible. And everyone can relate to it. And we've seen it kind of everyone knows someone who is like that, or you've been like that at some point. Uh, It's just an easy thing to fall into. Something I'd love to chat about is potentially kind of you talked about, um, we've talked about insufficient sleep. What is sufficient sleep? Is there a a quantity? Um, And then in terms of quantity, like, is there a certain quality there as well that we have to be aware of? And potentially talk about kind of obviously day to day people, but then a lot of the audience here are putting their body through more than what the average person is. So potentially sleep requirements might change there too. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in those questions. (laughs) So how much sleep do we need? That's a very difficult question to answer, actually. Mm -hmm. But what I'll do is I'll mention people who have certain genetic variants that mean that they need less sleep than the rest of us. And then also I'll speak about current guidelines and circumstances in which people might need more or less sleep than normal. So to start with those genetic variants, then of all of the gene mutations that have been identified so far, there's a mutation in a gene named DEC2, which basically causes the people who carry that rare variant to need less sleep than the rest of us. How much sleep do these people need? They still need about six hours and 15 minutes on average, which is probably much more sleep than most people would have guessed. I think that people imagine that the Margaret Thatchers of the world can get by fine on two hours of sleep. And the evidence that we have suggests that that is categorically not the case. So that's one end of the spectrum. If we think about current guidelines, then for adults aged 18 to 64, the current National Sleep Foundation guidelines are that people should spend seven to nine hours of sleep per night. And in truth, how much each of us needs depends on our genetics, but also it depends on our current lives, how much we've been sleeping previously and so on. So which circumstances might modify the amount that each of us needs on an ongoing basis? Well, one of them will be the presence of things like infections. So because of the way that sleep is regulated, if you have an infection, then you tend to need more sleep than normal. Basically, the longer that we've been awake each day, the greater the pressure there is for us to sleep. As we're awake, we have various chemicals that accumulate in our brains that promote sleep, both by inhibiting wake-promoting brain circuits, but also stimulating activity in sleep-promoting ones. And the primary one of these is adenosine. Caffeine acts as an adenosine receptor antagonist, and that's why it promotes wakefulness. But there are a bunch of other ones too, and some of these are, for example, inflammatory cytokines such as IL-1-beta which is important to immune function. And there are other ones too, prostaglandin D2, nitric oxide, possibly BDNF, a few others. But with that aside, because that some of those circulating factors will be increased during infection, we tend to need more sleep. So that would be one variable which will influence sleep need. Another will be exercise training. And that, of course, is partly related to changes in some of those circulating factors. In general, if you're going through a very intensive period of training, so if you're going through an overreaching training cycle, for example, then it might be that you need a bit more sleep than you otherwise would do. If you look at exercise and sleep, then you see a relationship which is quite common with respect to 
different variables in health. That sounds very vague, so I'm going to expand on it. What I mean is that if you take somebody who's completely sedentary and you have them start an exercise training program in which they increase their moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity by a reasonable amount, then you see improvements in various health outcomes. You also tend to see improvements in sleep. So people tend to fall asleep a little bit faster. They tend to spend a little bit more of the time asleep in deep sleep. And they tend to sleep slightly more efficiently. So if you look at their sleep across the night, then from the moment that they try and fall asleep to the moment they wake up in the morning, they tend to be asleep a greater proportion of the time. But then if you take people above and beyond that sweet spot and you have them dramatically crank up their physical activity, then quite often what you see is deterioration in sleep. So it's quite common, for example, for elite athletes to suffer from sleep issues. Maybe a third to a half of all elite athletes report sleep problems. And the sleep problems that they report are dependent on the types of athletes that they are. So women, for example, female athletes are at high risk of sleep problems. If you look at very heavy athletes, so that could be a bodybuilder in the off-season, it could be a lineman in the NFL, it could be a prop in rugby, for example, then because of the amount of mass that they carry around, they're predisposed to certain sleep issues, primarily breathing-related sleep problems like obstructive sleep apnea, because basically the mass of the neck is so high that the airway tends to collapse during sleep. So that's one example. And then athletes in aesthetic sports, so that could be a physique sport, it could be gymnastics, for example, are also predisposed to sleep issues. And quite often that's a product of energy availability. So basically some of those people tend to not consume enough calories to support their training, to support some of their basic bodily functions like their reproductive systems. And especially towards, for example, the latter stages of contest prep, when somebody gets very lean, I'm sure you've experienced this, but your sleep just goes down the yeah. toilet. And the reason is that your body wants to wake up so that you can go out, find food, and that food supports your ability to gain fat mass. And then that fat mass acts as, acts as a signal in the brain to say that everything is okay. And then in response to that, your immune function is going to improve, your testosterone is going to go up, etc. So physical activity is definitely another modifying factor. And I suppose to cap this question, a good thing to discuss would be how you can go about figuring how much sleep you need. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best way to go about this is to try and remove the breaks on getting enough sleep. And there are certain breaks that are common among people. One of them is caffeine and other stimulants. I speak about caffeine because it's the most commonly consumed psychoactive substance there is, but of course there are a bunch of them. If you look, for example, at coffee or chocolate, they contain other stimulant compounds, other methyls and things like theobromine, for example, and then use of prescription stimulants is on the up now too among certain populations. But basically if you remove some of those for a period of time, then you'll get a better idea of how much sleep you'll need. And probably what you'll find is that Let's say that tomorrow you go cold turkey and you stop consuming any caffeine and any other stimulants. You feel rubbish for a bit. And temporarily, your sleep duration might increase quite substantially. But then over time, as you start to pay off that sleep debt, it will stabilize at a certain level. Another issue that some people will face is waking up to an alarm clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So when possible, I still suggest, even though there's that data that's been published recently on weekend recovery sleep that people try and catch up on sleep when they can and reduce their use of alarm clocks in the morning. And in reality, many people still need to work, wake up to one because they need to be getting ready for work at 6am and naturally they wake up at 7am. So one way to try and circumvent that is to try and shift your body's clock earlier, which will basically help you go to sleep earlier. And then if that's the case and you start to wake up at the same time, you have a longer sleep opportunity. How would you do that? You do that primarily by manipulating your patterns of light exposure. So we have our 
clocks in our bodies and the most important clock that exists in our bodies is in the brain. It's a structure in the front of the hypothalamus named the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And basically, this structure sits above where the optic nerves from the eyes cross, and it samples information about our patterns of light exposure to keep track of them. And then when the sun sets and we dim the lights at night, that signal is relayed back to a structure named the pineal gland, which synthesizes melatonin. And that basically gets a bunch of different brain circuits ready for sleep. And in this way, if we initiate that darkness signal earlier, then we can help shift our clock earlier, which is the main determinant of the timing of our sleep. So, well, it, it's one of the determinants mm -hmm. of the time of our sleep. So how would that look? That would look like somebody waking up in the morning and getting outside in daylight as early as possible and trying to increase the amount of time spent out there to help shift the clock earlier. And then also being more vigilant about patterns of light exposure in the evening. So for example, you could use blue blocking glasses, you could dim the lights, you could turn off some of the lights selectively, you can use devices such as F.Lux for your computer or Twilight Android phones or Night Shift mode for iPhones, all of these things that basically pull blue light specifically out of the screens because blue light has the strongest effect on the timing of our body's clocks and probably on alertness too. So I would say if you want to work out how much sleep you need and you still have to wake up to an alarm, more light exposure outside during the daytime, shortly after waking, less light exposure at night through some of those manipulations that I suggested, and then cut down stimulant intake. And those would be the most important things, I think. Cool. No, that's super interesting. And I think uh, it's a nice idea to, I say a nice idea as if no one's going to remove caffeine from their life. Um, I like the, the thought of kind of yeah, at least tapering down caffeine use and things so you can kind of eventually see how things are looking. Um, and I think it's just a good sign. Like if someone is having to get through their day via having to have their coffee, it kind of gives a sign that potentially they're not getting that sleep that they require anyway. When we're calculating, I'm just interested in terms of, and I don't know if I'm wrong here, but in the research, I don't know if it's counted in terms of numbers of hours. Is it number of hours asleep or is it number of hours in bed? Is there a differentiator there? That's actually a very good question. And, and I just want to comment quickly on something in relation to caffeine. You want to use caffeine strategically, I think. And the nice thing is that when you go through even a couple of days in which you don't consume it, you resensitize your body to those effects of caffeine. Because in reality, if you've been consuming caffeine for a relatively long period of time, then you're less sensitive to it than you used to be. So it's not having such a strong effect anymore. So actually, if you go through even a brief period of withdrawal from it, then you'll gain those benefits that you once got from it too. And also your sleep will be better overall. Now, with respect to your question, it's a good question because it's not always consistent between studies. So with self-reported sleep, for example, sometimes the questions are a little bit vague. Sometimes people will be asked about time in bed specifically, or sometimes they'll be asked how long they sleep. But quite often, if you ask somebody, how long do you sleep? They'll think, well, I go to bed at about 10 PM and I wake up at about 6 AM. So I guess that I sleep about eight hours because that's eight hours in bed. And if you have healthy sleep, then you're probably asleep for 85% of that time or higher. So, of course, you're not asleep for eight hours. You'd be asleep for seven hours and however many minutes. So, good question, and I don't think there's a good answer to it. So, actually, when we come back to working out how much sleep you need, it's a case of it's actually better to do that individual approach rather than aiming for a certain kind of number of hours in bed or whatever it might be. No, I, I would absolutely focus on time in bed. Okay. Because you, you can't control how much of that time you spend asleep. And actually, ironically, the more you try and control that, the less likely you are to spend much of that time asleep because sleep 
related anxiety is yeah. a real sleep killer. So I would I would focus on time in bed. That's something you can control. Yeah. And then all those behaviors that facilitate getting enough time in bed, but also getting you ready to make as much of that time restorative sleep as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, that's, it makes complete, I guess it's a case of, I don't know, if you know you need eight hours sleep, maybe don't aim, aim for eight hours in bed, aim for like eight and a half or something along those lines. So you make up kind of that time. Yeah, I, I think if you engage in the behaviors that are important to synchronizing your body's clock with a 24-hour day each day, and then you get to bed at the right time for you because you don't want to go to bed earlier than you feel sleepy. Yeah. You'll just lie in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking, why can't I sleep? Why can't I sleep? And actually the quality of your sleep probably won't be as high afterwards either. So you don't want to just try and sleep earlier by going to bed early because that won't work. But if you improve your patterns of light exposure, then if you're like most people, then that's likely to shift your body's clock a bit early, which will help you go to sleep earlier. And then once you're in bed, I think initially, if possible, so maybe, for example, during the holidays, this is possible, sleep in as long as you can, avoid the alarm clock, minimize your stimulant use, cut it if possible, and then you'll get some sort of baseline for yourself. Recognize that that's a moving target, but the most important thing is getting to bed on time. And for that reason, I think setting an alarm clock for the start of your pre-bed routine or for shortly before your bedtime is a really smart idea just to ingrain yeah. that time. And then sleeping in as much as possible is the way to go. And actually, and this might seem like a weird question or a really obvious answer, in terms of not having an alarm in the morning, how do you know when to get up? Say you wake up like, I don't know, in the middle of the night and obviously you've only been asleep maybe four hours, you go to the loo. How do you kind of decide, okay, this is the time? Do you, is there something you feel or what What would you say there, Greg? It's a, it's a very good question, actually. It's not a question that anyone's ever asked me before. Oh. <laughs> so congrats. <laughs> so I, I think it depends on the person. So if I think about myself, for example, because everyone always thinks about themselves first, <laughs> then I wake up quite early naturally. I go to bed quite early naturally. And I know for me that if light is starting to creep in through my window because the sun's up, then that's probably about the time at which I would naturally get up. And if that hasn't happened yet, then for me, it's likely to be too early. Now, there are some ways that you can check the time with out disrupting your sleep too much because if for example you turn off your phone before bed and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you then turn on your phone then you're exposing yourself to that light which is going to both affect the time of your body's clock but also affect alertness so light has alerting effects that are independent of effects on the circadian system the circadian system is the fancy term for the biological system that regulates your body's clock so with that said, you can, for example, get alarm clocks that will project the time of day onto your ceiling, and they'll use red light to do so because red light is least disruptive to our body's clocks. So that's one option. I think there are also alarm clocks that will do things like tell you what time of day it is, okay. as opposed to actually showing you the time of the day with some lights. But... With all of that said, if you don't go any of those routes, then it is tricky to know what time of day it is. So I just say that if, if you feel that you must check the time of day, then you want to try and expose yourself to as little light as possible at that time. So let's say, for example, you use blue blocking glasses and you have them by your bedside, then you could put those on and you could turn on your phone at that time. And if you use one of those apps, which filters blue light from your screen, then that will make it minimally disruptive. And something I didn't mention earlier is that you can also reduce the brightness settings on those devices too, because it's not just the wavelength or the color of the light that's important, it's also the intensity of the light that's important. And that's one of the reasons that during the daytime, it's important to spend lots of time outside during daylight if possible, because the intensity of light outside is so much higher than what you get in a room like this one at the moment. Just as an example of that, if it's midday in the middle of the summer in London and there are no clouds around, one of those rare days, then you might be exposed to 150,000 lux. 
and a lux is just the unit of light intensity. Whereas in a well-lit room, indoors at the same time of day, you might be exposed to 750 lux, something like that. So that difference is enormous. And for that reason, spending more time outside during daylight is also really important. So slightly roundabout answer to your question, but hopefully a couple of those tips are useful. No, definitely. And it's funny you said like you put it to yourself because uh, I don't have blackout blinds, but I wear an eye mask. So sometimes I wake up and I have the eye mask on and then I take, I'm like slowly taking off. And I'm like, whoa, it's so bright in here. And I don't even realize. And I'm very much the same as soon as it's like bright in the bedroom, which it is because we have terrible blinds. That's when I'm kind of like, oh, I'm awake now. I can't get back to sleep once it's that bright. That normally yeah. works. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. And actually, when I first moved to London recently, I didn't have blackout blinds. And that light coming in from outside was really disruptive to my sleep, as was the noise, of course. Yeah. From, from down the road but yeah blackout blinds can be really helpful eye masks can if you find them comfortable sometimes if you're like me you just find that they slide up your shiny forehead so <laughs> you wake up and it's on the pillow next to you or something but those can be really helpful and then i mentioned noise there and things that you can do to drown out noise can also be very helpful so for example you can get white noise machines or because you want your bedroom to be cool you can use a fan and that's generally what I use because that serves the dual purpose of both reducing temperature, but also drowning out some of those noises too. Yeah, that's it's really funny. I live just by a railway, it's literally just outside the door. So I have a fan right by me in bed, so it's like white noise, and then I wear the eye mask. So it works pretty well as a combination. And actually something you talked about, I thought would be interesting, and I know there's some products out there now that are like, I think they're sad lights, so they're for seasonal dis. Mm. dis- Effective disorder, effective disorder, um, and can they be used for people potentially who can't get out and get that much sun exposure? Can they be a powerful kind of component? Yeah, I think they could be really helpful for those people. So let's say that your morning commute is at six a.m. and you're then in the office until six p.m. First, it sucks to be you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but the second, if that's the case and you can't get that type of daylight signal even if you can't get out at your lunch break which is what i would suggest get outside with your colleagues go for a walk with your friends perfect if that's not the case then getting one of those light boxes preferably one which emits at least fifteen thousand lux and using that early in your waking day is likely to be helpful be especially helpful if you are one of those poor people that struggles with seasonal affective disorder which is basically deterioration in mood that occurs during short winter days and one of the things that's predictive of that is changes in the timing of people's bodies clocks and what you often find is that if people increase their exposure to bright blue light early in the day then they can counter some of those changes in their body's clocks and then also in response to that improve how they feel so i would say get yourself a light box i'm looking at one in this room at the moment which i think is a lumi yeah and i think it's fifteen thousand lux and use that for probably as as long as you can relatively early in your waking day and that will basically help anchor the time of your body's clock earlier in the day which will then help you get to sleep earlier and then increase your sleep opportunity because one of the issues with Going to bed late, of course, is that if your sleep opportunity is shorter, you get less sleep. And then if your sleep is restricted, then if you're like most people, then you'll experience quite rapid deterioration in your mood and various other cognitive functions too. So executive functions, which are those functions that are important to planning, carrying out, and then monitoring how you're doing in tasks that are directed to achieving your goals. Fantastic. And we've actually already touched on quite a few of them, but I was hoping to get into kind of, and I described this previously before we were recording as like a sleep pyramid in terms of when we're trying to achieve our best sleep, what are the things that we can do as like foundational things that we should be ticking? And then as we move up towards maybe supplementation or some of these more novel items that play lesser roles, but can help. 
So if you were to lay the foundations, kind of that sleep hygiene type deal, I think a lot of our listeners will be aware of. So don't feel you have to go in loads of detail. And then we can go up to a lot of the more interesting supplements that people have been trying. Yeah. So a couple of quick thoughts on this. One is that you always want to pick something that you can do because it might be that something at the base of the pyramid is really important and really foundational, but the person just can't change their behaviors in alignment with that. Right. And for that reason, they might benefit from going slightly further up the pyramid, doing something that they can implement on an ongoing basis. And then hopefully over time, they can then return to more foundational things and then focus on that. So that's one thing to consider, but otherwise you would always want to try and triage by basically selecting the intervention, which is going to have the largest positive effect on your sleep overall. And for most people, those things do relate to sleep hygiene. And actually they often relate to stress, which is of course no surprise, but if you look at sleep problems, then for example, they're most common at the start of the working week and work related stress is commonly ruinous to good sleep. And I'll touch on some of the things that people can do related to that. In terms of stratifying different things you can do by their importance, I think it's difficult to do because people have difficulty sleeping that vary from one person to the next. Mm-hmm. So it could be, for example, one person's very anxious. So things that they can do to reduce their anxiety will be really effective for them. Other people, it might just be that they go to sleep very late and then for that reason, if they can focus on shifting their sleep earlier, then they will improve that. Other people, it will just be that they consume way too much caffeine. So if they correct that, then their sleep will improve. And other people, if for example, they drink more than they would do in an ideal world, then if they cut down their booze intake, then that's likely to benefit them. So with that spiel aside, what I'll do is I'll I'll just map out things that people can do across the day to give them some sort of chronological basis for this. So so during daytime, already mentioned a couple of these, but plenty of time outside during daylight, and I would suggest at least half an hour, preferably by lunchtime. Regular physical activity is, of course, important. And actually, I'm just assuming that your listeners probably don't need to worry about that too much. But probably doing too much, some of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's probably more relevant for them that overtraining or non-functional overreaching can wreck people's sleep. So I would say monitoring your, your training volume is likely to be helpful. And there are different things that you can do to that end, but I won't touch on those because sure you've touched on those in previous podcasts and then otherwise diet is important during the daytime so the most important things with respect to sleep are first caffeine and i'll just give you a hard rule of thumb and that's consume no more than two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass per day there's a website named caffeineinformer.com which contains concentrations of caffeine that are common that are in commonly consumed foods and drinks. So you can refer to that to get some idea of how much caffeine you're consuming on a daily basis. And I would stop consuming caffeine by nine hours before your planned bedtime. On average, the caffeine half-life, which is the amount of time that it takes for the peak concentration of caffeine in your blood after consuming caffeine to come down by 50%, is about six hours problem is that the the quarter life so the amount of time for it to come down by 75 percent is about 12 hours so it does actually spend quite a long time in your system but with that in mind i think capping caffeine intake by nine hours before your planned bedtime is smart and just note that if you consume more caffeine than that two milligram suggestion then it's likely that it will stay in your body for longer so the greater the quantity of caffeine that you consume the earlier the time at which you'll want to stop consuming it by. With respect to alcohol, I would generally suggest not consuming any alcohol after about four hours before your planned bedtime. Same rationale goes with respect to the amount of alcohol you consume and current guidelines I think are for no more than two units per day, which is about a pint or a medium glass of wine. 
So that's important too. And then with respect to the composition of your diet, the evidence isn't that good. If anything, it seems that higher protein intakes might lead to sleep fragmentation. And if anything, actually consuming a relatively high glycemic load dinner seems to support healthy sleep. People tend to fall asleep a little bit faster. And that's probably because if you consume a meal, which leads to a strong insulin secretion response by the pancreas, then you tend to direct branch chain amino acids into muscles. And that reduces competition for serotonin Sorry, that reduces competition for one of the amino acids, which is a precursor for melatonin synthesis on this large neutral amino acid transporter protein in the brain. So basically, by consuming those carbohydrates, you end up synthesizing a bit more melatonin, probably, and then that supports healthy sleep. But what I'd say is that it's more important to focus on diet timing. And in general, I would finish consuming calories for the day by at least two hours before your planned bedtime and there's been some evidence recently to show that if you assign a smaller proportion of your daily energy intake to your dinner then you tend to have higher activity in the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system and then that supports your ability to sleep well that night and then with respect to your pre-bed routine i would say about two hours before your planned bedtime, start to actively reduce your exposure to light. Dim some lights, put on blue blocking glasses if you want to use them, turn off some lights if you can't, dim your lights. And then also if you have those apps on your devices, then that will start pulling that type of light out of the screens as the sun sets, which is going to be useful. So at that time, I'd also reduce the brightness settings on those devices. And then around this time, you want to actively engage in things which you find relaxing. And the corollary of that is that you want to avoid things that you find stressful. So don't check anything related to Brexit <laughs> in the two hours before your planned bedtime. Everyone does this after work. <laughs> My girlfriend is <laughs> check Brexit after work. <laughs> oh, God forbid. Okay, so don't do that. And... Do something you find relaxing. So that could be, for example, reading a book in dim lighting. It could be listening to a podcast. One thing that people find very helpful is having a hot shower about an hour before bedtime, 10 minutes, about 40 degrees C is about right. What that will do is increase the temperature of your skin. And then that actually counterintuitively helps your body lose heat, which is important to falling asleep quickly and it tends to therefore reduce how long it takes people to fall asleep. So have a hot shower and then afterwards you actually want to put your socks on. That also tends to help people fall asleep faster. And then in the half hour or so before bedtime, one thing that I find useful, but if you're not this way inclined, just ignore this, but I, I tend to do a meditation within about half an hour or so of sleep. That just quietens my mind as much as, as much as anything else. And if you don't want to read, then actually listening to a podcast that you don't find overly stimulating is smart at this time too, because you can do so in dim lighting without worrying about trying to make sense of what's on the page. So that tends to be helpful for lots of people. And then around this time, you want to actively try to reduce the temperature in your bedroom too. So that could be opening the window. If you live in a noisy city like we do, then that might not be the best option for you, in which case you might, for example, adjust the settings on your thermostat. There are some devices that people use if they have lots of money, like the chili pad, yeah. which is basically something that sits beneath your bed sheets, which you can use to regulate the temperature in your bed, which people find useful. Otherwise, as I mentioned earlier, fans can be useful. And then around the time that you plan to fall asleep, you'll switch the fan on, put on your eye mask if that's something that you use. Also, some people like earplugs. I think... Many people seem to like silicon earplugs in particular, which I haven't used before. I personally find earplugs a bit uncomfortable because what tends to happen is that you put them in and then you can just hear your heartbeat really loud and it can be quite distracting if you're not used to it. 
but those are an option that many people find useful and that's they're actually very useful while traveling for example if you're sat mm. on a plane then that i would definitely have a spare pair of those handy for situations like that and then at night time if you have to wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom then use as little lighting as possible make sure that your way to the bathroom is unimpeded and if you then go back to sleep and can't drop off again within half an hour or so then i would say you could you could try meditation if you already are trained in that if you already practice that in some way and i quite like a body scan meditation at that time but otherwise you want to associate your bed with sleep so leave your bedroom go and do something relaxing elsewhere in dim lighting and then when you feel sleepy again go back to bed and it, it is actually really important that you reinforce that association between your bed and your sleep so you want to avoid working in your bedroom for example during the day and you also want your bedroom to be as stress-free as possible and if your bedroom's really cluttered for example then you might find that that weighs on your mind now one thing that i'll finally mention is with respect to triaging so you asked at the start about what is most important for most people i mentioned stress and to that end i think one thing that's really helpful and there's not strong evidence for this but there was some work published last year by a guy at bailey university named michael scullin which basically showed that if you have people write a to-do list for the coming days at bedtime then they tend to fall asleep faster and interestingly this wasn't statistically significant which probably means nothing to some people but with that aside people who listed more items on their to-do list tended to fall asleep the fastest so basically the idea is that you have what are named Pennebaker like effects but basically you offload things from your mind which otherwise you might be trying to remember for the next day damn i need to do this at 9am i have this meeting at 11 and then at 4 i need to go and pick up the kids whatever it might be if you make that to-do list then you're unloading that stuff from your consciousness so strategies like that to reduce stress can be really helpful for lots, for lots of people i think and then right at the top of the pyramid for most people would be things like supplements they are an option and some of them are somewhat efficacious mm -hmm. you mentioned melatonin and in my mind that is still the best widely available sleep aid that there is and of course melatonin is a drug for that reason you can't get it over the counter in countries like england if i go to the states for example then i quite often pick some up while i'm there and i think you can still import it if you order it from an american company then they'll often ship it over without any issues so with that in mind if you take about 300 micrograms then that tends to help people fall asleep faster sleep a little bit longer and sleep slightly more efficiently mm -hmm. so they spend a little bit less time awake while they're in bed that i would put at the top of the supplement pyramid by which i mean i think it's the most effective sleep aid that there right. is that's why it's available but then other things that you could take you could take l-lysine three grams like melatonin you take about an hour before bedtime and again there's not good evidence on this actually at all but it seems that l-lysine helps people to feel like they slept better and then interestingly if people go through a period of time which they don't get quite enough sleep then it seems that l-lysine will support their cognitive performance during okay. that period of insufficient sleep too tastes like sugar yeah. it's really inexpensive so and and the other thing is that it probably has some other beneficial effects for many people so for example it might improve people's blood sugar regulation and actually when i'm considering supplements that might help people with their sleep i always try and think of some of the other effects of these particular compounds and then other things that people might use so one of them is valerian and another is lemon balm mm -hmm. and these are both plants and they tend to both be anxiolytic reduce people's anxiety and they both act on GABA 
receptors in the brain. And interestingly, they act in different ways. So one of them basically stimulates the synthesis of GABA, which is a sleep-promoting neuromodulator in the brain. And the other tends to inhibit the breakdown of GABA. So if you take them both, then you can basically synergistically increase signaling through GABA-A receptors. And because of that synergism, it's likely that you can get by with a lower dose of each of them, which could then reduce off-target effects or unintended effects, things that you don't want to happen. And if you go with those, then it's tough to know exactly how much of each of them you might need, but it's likely something like 80 milligrams of lemon balm and 120 milligrams of valerian. And off the top of my head, I think that you'd want the valerian to contain at least 0.8% phalerinic acids, just if, if you did want to go that route. So that can be helpful. And something I mentioned earlier is that people's sleep issues are best addressed differently according to individuals. So with respect to supplements, if, for example, you, you're experiencing high levels of anxiety at the moment, then something like valerian or lemon balm might be particularly helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have an issue with the function of your body's clock, melatonin is more likely to be helpful. So I think I'd probably say that those four are a good way to go. Melatonin has the strongest evidence. After that, valerian probably has the strongest evidence. Lemon balm, there's less evidence for, but I think that there's good reason to think that it might be helpful. And then L-glycine, I just think that it's probably generally good for you and it might help with your sleep a little bit. There are all sorts of other things that we could consider. And I've just focused on things that you consume about an hour before bedtime. Something to mention, for example, would be that there are plausibly things that you could do during the day or take during the day to support your sleep at night. So if, for example, you're experiencing high levels of stress, then you might find that supplementing with prebiotics, so for example, five grams of galacto-oligosaccharides or fructo-oligosaccharides might be helpful. Certain probiotic strains might also be helpful for that reason. And then also there are some other very speculative things that you could do to enhance your sleep, but I'm not really willing to speak about those at the moment. But I would say you could try those things. You could probably take most of those for many weeks at a time. With melatonin, there's no good evidence that taking it over a long period of time leads to tolerance and withdrawal effects when you stop taking it. But also, I just don't think that it's necessary for most people to take it. Your body should be synthesizing enough melatonin as it is. And if you focus on those sleep hygiene tips, then you'll be fine. L-glycine, I think you could probably pretty much take indefinitely with no issues whatsoever. And then lemon balm and valerian, because they signal through GABA-A receptors, or it seems that they do at least in part, I would say you wouldn't want to take those for too long at one time. I'd probably cycle off them every 12 weeks or so because with, for example, drugs that target those receptors, you do tend to get tolerance and withdrawal effects after taking them for a period of time. So keep that in mind. I have to first of all say I love the the schema of what we can do from morning to night. And there was a lot of things that you can do before going down the supplemental route, which probably almost makes up for not needing the supplements, I guess. And you talked about some complications in long-term use of them and things, which I think is important to consider. Um, uh, one I would like to hear your opinion on is a big one in the bodybuilding community, ZMA, kind of magnesium and zinc before bed. Is this something that is promoted from what I've seen, magnesium maybe? I'm not sure about the zinc part. What's kind of ZMA a good thing to be taking before bed? Yeah, good question. There's, there's not good evidence to support its use in helping people with their sleep. So I think that ZMA probably became popular around the time of the Balco scandal, which you're probably familiar with. Right. Victor, Victor Conti, Marion Jones, Dwayne Chambers, all those athletes who tested positive who were basically being given drugs by this Bay Area Laboratories Cooperative. And I think that they were selling ZMA at the time, yeah. and they had some really good marketing hype around it saying, this is great, it will boost your testosterone, you'll sleep better, all these different things. And the truth is that if you look at those individually, 
So your ZMA is zinc, magnesium, and vitamin B6. Then there's not strong evidence really to show that they're particularly helpful. With that said, it's almost always the case that if somebody's insufficient in a micronutrient, then correcting that insufficiency is likely to improve their health and quite often their sleep too. And if you look at minerals, for example, then magnesium is the most common mineral insufficiency in the Western world. So I think it's perfectly plausible that magnesium could help with sleep. There's also mechanistic reason to think that it could help with sleep. So if you look in, in the brain, for example, then the concentration of magnesium ions increases overnight during the sleep period as this very pronounced circadian rhythm. Okay. And there's also reason to think that zinc might be helpful. And with vitamin B6, high doses of it tend to, I'm speaking about very high doses, tend to increase dream salience or how vivid dreams are. Okay. And I haven't looked at this literature recently, but I think that it's a cofactor for one of the enzymes that's involved in melatonin synthesis. But again, most people produce enough melatonin, so it's, it's not really much of an issue. And to get those effects on dreams, you'd have to take very high doses of it, which wouldn't be a good thing to do in the long term. So of the different micronutrients that you could consider for sleep, the strongest evidence actually by far is vitamin D. And vitamin D is, of course, a very common vitamin deficiency, especially at higher latitudes, especially during winter time. And people with certain conditions might benefit from it. So for example, if you have somebody who has lots of musculoskeletal pain, then vitamin D seems to reduce that quite commonly. And pain is likely to keep people up at night. So if it reduces somebody's pain, then it's probably going to improve their sleep. So I probably suggest that people check their vitamin D status and look at supporting that more readily than some of those other things. Of those different things that you mentioned, I think that magnesium is probably likely to be the most useful for most people. With zinc, there's some evidence that zinc-rich foods might help improve certain sleep-related parameters. It's not very strong evidence, mm-hmm. though. And then with the vitamin, the B vitamin that you mentioned, might have some effects on dreams in very high doses. Otherwise, there's not really good evidence that it does much of anything. Cool. No, that, I mean... The comments there are really important in terms of just filling in micronutrient deficiencies is something that is important, not necessarily that they're going to kind of be massively role players for sleep. Just inherently, it's you need to kind of fill that deficit, which I think is great. Um, I think the only other thing I wanted to touch on potentially is just the idea of maybe lavender. I think a lot of people are aware of kind of, I don't know, spraying mm. your bed sheets with lavender or having a, I forget what it's called, a puffs it out um yeah, oh, spritzing it all over yeah. the place yeah. and then like camantile tea are these kind of like uh, old wives tales or do they have some ability i guess to potentially relax people yeah they, they probably do they probably do and something i didn't mention earlier is that one of the things that makes me reluctant to suggest that people take some of these plant-derived extracts is guaranteeing the purity and the concentrations of active ingredients in them because if you take synthetic GABA, for example, if you take pharma GABA, then it's quite easy to standardize what you're getting. But if you take valerian or chamomile or lavender or whatever it might be, magnolia bark, then it's difficult to guarantee exactly what you're getting. Now, with that said, there is a standardized lavender product which has been used in the research. I think it's, I think the brand name is Selexan, right. S-I-L-E-X-A-N. And lavender seems to be useful, again, for people with anxiety and anxiety-related sleep issues. And there's quite good evidence that it does help some people sleep better. I, I put it a little bit below valerian in terms of the strength of that evidence. It might actually be a bit higher than lemon balm. I just think there's nice synergy between lemon balm and valerian. And also they have some complementary mechanisms that I didn't mention. 
So I think lavender can be helpful for some people. Interestingly, and you mentioned aromatherapy there, I think the evidence for aromatherapy might actually be stronger. And that's something that people can do. One of the issues with aromatherapy is that people's sense of smell quite quickly adapts to the smells in the environment. And for that reason, probably the best way to expose yourself to it would be intermittently, but you'd have to have some sort of device which is intermittently spritzing you with lavender (laughs) during the night. And that, that might be difficult to operationalize, but it can definitely be helpful. And actually you can use it in a very targeted way for certain outcomes. So for example, there's something named targeted memory reactivation that it can be used for. Let's say that you have an important exam coming up in a month's time. While you're studying during the day, you have some a lavender essence, sorry, some lavender essence nearby, and you can smell that. And if you then expose yourself to that scent that night, then it's as if it tickles your brain in a way that basically triggers the reactivation of what you were learning. Interesting. And then that can help consolidate those memories. And there's quite strong evidence for that with respect to a few different aromas, but lavender is definitely one of them that's been used and it seems to be useful. And I'm just trying to think about the other thing that you mentioned, lavender and chamomile. Chamomile, there there have been a few studies that have looked at chamomile extracts and chamomile teas and Sometimes they suggest that it might be useful. One thing I haven't mentioned is that many of these studies are quite poorly designed. So I don't recall the specifics of the chamomile studies, but just as a general comment, sometimes, for example, there's no placebo control. Right. As you can imagine, it's difficult to have a placebo control for chamomile tea. If you give somebody fennel tea, then the taste is quite distinctive. So what can you do? It's tricky. You could try and remove some of the active compounds, but that becomes mm. very, very quickly. So I would say you can try it and there's likely no harm in doing so. One issue though, with taking something like a tea around bedtime is just that you're likely to need to wake up to urinate at night thereafter. And actually for that reason, I generally suggest that people stop consuming any fluids at their dinner or by their dinner so that that's less likely to happen. And I don't know if there's good evidence for this, but personally, I find that chamomile has a diuretic effect. Right. And if I consume it too late in the day, then I'm likely to need to wake up to use the bathroom. So it depends on the person. There's not particularly good evidence for it. It's something that you can try. It's readily available, but it's unlikely to hurt. Yep. And also some of the polyphenols in things like chamomile likely have some other health benefits too. Okay. So give it a go wouldn't expect any miracles and I also wouldn't put it particularly high up my list of recommendations. Cool. No, fantastic, Greg. It's really interesting. I know we spent probably too much time on the supplementation because not many of them do a whole lot at the moment that we are aware of, but I think it's important to go over a lot of them because I think especially in our industry of for like bodybuilders and stuff, kind of everyone looks to do everything they can and potentially end up putting money towards the wrong things and maybe can put some more time and effort towards, I don't know, getting one of the lamps, which aren't that cheap, um, but they may have a big outcome for you. They're not super expensive, but they're not like a, a tenner. They're more like potentially 50 quid. I think I was looking at some, which I think I will invest in now. But without blabbing on too much, Greg, I, I really enjoyed this chat. I think people are going to love uh, what you've given them here. Um, and before we kind of cut off, I do want to make people aware of kind of you're working with human OS, you're doing a lot of stuff over there. And uh, we have an offer for them, um, which is code revive stronger, and they can get one month free um, at pro uh, not free, sorry, for $1, pretty much free um, over at human OS. So I uh, want to make sure people can kind of yeah, find human OS find you where can they find out more information? Where should they head, Greg? Sure, yeah, come on over to humanos.me. And you've had Dan on before, but Dan is the CEO there. And I've been working with HumanOS for a couple of years now. And what you'll find there is basically one place where you can come to find out what are the most important things that I need to know to be healthy 
how do I then act on those behaviors? So for example, oh, maybe I should try a paleo diet. There's lots of very strong evidence that paleo diets are good for people, even if they're probably not truly paleolithic. That's beside the point. With that in mind, how do I then cook paleo food? And we have things like cooking courses that will help people with that. And then also people can track relevant health behaviors. So I mentioned the importance of tracking time in bed today. You can do that manually at HumanOS, but also the web application will synchronize with various wearable devices such as Fitbits. So you can then track your sleep data on the platform. And then ultimately also will help people understand whether the ways in which they're behaving are pushing them towards or away from their health goals. So check out humanos.me. We have a free blog, which anybody can access, which I regularly contribute to. We have a free podcast too, which is the official podcast of the Sleep Research Society and the Canadian Sleep Society. And we haven't had too many podcasts recently, but there are a bunch of them in the pipeline, which should be out shortly. And then if you're interested in my own prattlings online, then you can find me on Twitter, which is at GDM Potter and I was persuaded to sign up for Instagram too about, Amazing. <laughs> two, about two, two weeks ago. So that's at, at GDM Potter there. And I think that HumanOS is HumanOS on Facebook. It's at HumanOS underscore me on Twitter. And it might just be at HumanOS on Instagram. But if you search for HumanOS, it will be easy to find, I'm sure. Amazing. I'll make sure all of those kind of references are linked below. And again, Revive Stronger for $1 for the pro course for one month at Human OS, which sounds incredible. Sounds like it would really help some people kind of, if they haven't got a lot of time, kind of get those things sorted out very, very quickly. Again, thank you, Greg. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you soon.